read it. Alright, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Uh, This is God's word. Let me pray. Uh, Father, we, um, we pause before we look at this passage, knowing that we have no hope of learning this passage, learning this text apart from your help. So we would ask, Holy Spirit, please come. Please come again and open our eyes and soften our hearts, unclog our ears and teach us. Teach us so that we may learn to trust you afresh, maybe trust you again for the eight millionth time, Uh, but please pierce our heart again with the gospel that we may fall upon you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm not a typical, I'm not a comic book kind of guy. but I like the comic book movies that have been coming out, especially The Dark Knight, Batman movie. I think it's one of the greatest movies ever, but you know what is my opinion worth? But anyway, one of the movies that I especially like was the first Spider-Man movie. Kirsten Dunst drives me nuts, but aside from her, the movie was really good. Uh, you remember the basic storyline, right? Peter Parker gets bitten by this genetically mutated spider, and so he gets kind of wobbly, and he goes home, crashes, wakes up the next morning, and what happens, right? He, he's looking at himself before in the mirror. He's all buff. He's noticing that he has muscles. He, you know, notice he, he, can, he can look or he can see straight without needing his glasses. He's, you know, <laughs> spraying... Uh, web out of his hand, and uh, he's, he's having to, you know, as the story kind of unfolds, he's having to discover his powers. He's having to discover this thing that is true about him now. And in the same way with us, we are, the, this Bible passage is confronting us to discover something that is true about us that many of us may not have discovered yet. And that thing is specifically, who are we? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be uh, a man or a woman? What does it mean to be part of this thing we call humanity? And there are a million different answers to this question. This is a very serious question that's kind of floating through the undercurrent of our culture. And how you answer this question affects everything. It affects how you think about yourself. It affects how you think about one another. It affects how you think about human rights and civil rights and caring for the poor. It affects how you think about your pets, believe it or not. So, what are some of the answers that are being provided in our culture? You remember uh, the movie The Matrix when Agent Smith is sitting down with Morpheus and you know he's, he's had him beat up and, he's, and he says, basically, humanity is a disease. You are a virus. Humanity moves from one area and consumes all the resources and keeps going. Humanity is a disease. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, who is a journalist, says that man is nothing but a developed primate. That's all he is. Christina Aguilera says that mankind is beautiful no matter what they say. No matter what people say, you're beautiful. And there are uh, some strands. With, <laughs> there are some strands within the New Age movement that get you in a room together and chant, "I am God. I am God." So you have some people answering the question and saying, we are gods. You have some people answering the question and saying, we are 
diseases, we are worms, we are filthy, what are we? Well, the Bible provides an answer as well. And it says that we are images of God. We are made not just in the image of God, we are His very image. We are the image of God. Which, you know, raises the question, what in the world does that mean? So we're going to spend the rest of tonight looking at it. Three things in particular that uh, I think it means to be made in the image of God, and I'm feeling especially alliterative this week. So these uh, three things are that we are royal, that we are reflective, and we are representational. Royal, reflective, (laughs) representational. You'll see what I'm talking about. So first, to be made in the image of God means that we are royal. Wow, that sounds extremely arrogant. Matt, what are you talking about? That seems like a very strong word to use about people. But it sounds weird because we have no idea how radical the Bible's view of us really is. Uh, It may not surprise you, or it may surprise you, that in other cultures, specifically ancient Near Eastern biblical cultures, the language of image of God was not uh, just used in the Bible. It was used of other people, other people's group, other cultures as well. The Pharaoh in particular, the king of the country, was called image of God because they believed he was sort of the uh, God incarnate. He was the visible, physical representation of their God. And so what they would do to establish their authority, establish their power, establish their dominion was to fill the entire land, their entire empire with images of the Pharaoh, images of themselves, images of the, uh, of the king. One of my uh, seminary professors went to one of these exhibit things, you know, uh, these Egyptian museums, and he said it was just room after room after room of statues of the Pharaoh. This is what they thought. This is, they thought the Pharaoh, the king, was the image of God himself. And it's not just an old, weird, ancient, biblical thing. Remember when we uh, first invaded Iraq? Remember that uh, you know, famous footage where the soldiers are pulling down that rope of that big statue of Saddam Hussein? He, too, had filled his whole land with images of himself. In North Korea, the, the president or the emperor, I don't even know what you call the guy over there, but you know they have those big posters, those big pictures all over the empire to say, this guy is the man. This is not just a weird old thing. But in Egyptian culture, when, this was, when Genesis 1 was written, the culture that Moses was living in, the person who wrote the book of Genesis, he saw that this culture was referring to the king as the image of God. And he used that as a way to say, this is a way to totally expose the hierarchy lie that these cultures are precipitating. Because what's so radical about the Bible is that it's not just the king who is made in God's image. It is everybody. Because in these cultures, the peasants were meaningless. They were expendable. They, were, they had no value. Only the king, only the pharaoh was important. They were the ones with all the dignity and with all the royalty. And the Bible says, no, Everybody, no matter who you are, is made royal, like the very king. You have the same worth and value and dignity as the Pharaoh himself. This is unbelievably radical and crazy, and I did not make this up. If you have, uh, actually you don't have to look at it, but Psalm 8, this is what Psalm 8 says, and it sort of reiterates this very thing that I'm talking about. It says in verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set into place... He's talking about looking at everything, and then he asks this question, What is man that you are mindful of him? Who are we? The son of man that you care for him. And this is what he says. He's talking to God. 
God, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. This is how radical the view of the Bible says about you, that you are made royal. You have radical dignity and integrity and value. And if this is true, this should do two things. One, this should change the way that we think about people, and this should change the way that we treat other people. The reason that we give rights to uh, humans, the reason why we have human rights, civil rights, the reason why we care for the poor is because we believe, Scripture says, that humanity is made with radical dignity, radical uh, integrity. And therefore, that is why it is philosophically at odds to, to, to want to give priority to people, to want to give you know, preference to people over anything else, and yet believe that the people are the product of a purposeless, mindless, godless machine called natural selection that just sort of pumps people out. Because if, 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 you, if you affirm the view of naturalism, which is basically the view that there is no God and all that exists is just nature, it's just matter, it's just what you see, then basically... Humanity has no more dignity than, than, than a rock. Why give this clump of molecules that you just happen to call human any more value, any more preference, any, any more priority than you would this clump of molecules you happen to call dirt or rock? They are uh, philosophically at posed, opposed to one another. And yet, deep down, instinctively, we want to give priority to people. When somebody is oppressing another people group, we don't like that. We say that's wrong. When somebody is, is mistreating the poor, we think that is an outrage. We want to care for the poor. We want to care for those who are weak, right? We have this instinct. And the question is, why? Why do we want to give priority and preference to people? Friedrich Nietzsche, who is a German philosopher and he was not a fan of Christianity, writes this in his book, The Antichrist. He asks the question, what is happiness? And he answers, it is the feeling that power is increasing, that resistance has been overcome, not contentment, but more power. And then he says this, the uh, first principle of humanity is that the weak and the botched shall perish. He's basically saying this is what natural selection is, right? The weak and the botched, which he means to be the mentally handicapped, those are the people that get left behind by the stronger. The stronger eats the weak. They should be, uh, they, they uh, uh, perish is the first principle of humanity. And then he writes this. In fact, they ought even to be helped to perish. What is more harmful than any vice? It's practical sympathy with all the botched and the weak. In other words, Christianity. The thing that I really like about Nietzsche is that he takes the view of atheism and he pushes it to its honest, logical, uncomfortable conclusion. Because he's saying that if you really do believe that there is no God and the whole engine that is driving the universe is natural selection, and therefore that the strong eat the weak, why would we want to care for and protect these weak people? In fact, it's unnatural to go against natural selection, right? So we should actually enter into this engine and help squash and, and help these people perish. Of course, Hitler took up that ideology and ran with it. But... Uh, 
But what explains your deepest instinct? What explains this thing inside of you that says, I want to give priority to people? There's something about people. I think we should care for the weak. I think we should care for those who are handicapped, no matter what position they are in. And the Bible affirms that instinct and says it's because people are made royal. People are made with dignity because they are made in the image of God. It affects how we think about people. And it affects how we treat other people. And I could spend a whole night talking about this, and I'm not going to. But um, basically, um, we have to ask ourselves the question, do you only associate and hang out with people that look like you, that fit in with your clique? Do you distance yourselves from those people, whoever they are? Maybe it's the unpopular. Maybe it's the ugly. Maybe it's the uh, socially awkward. Maybe it, it's the popular. Maybe it's the cool. Whoever it is, you have some group of people that you want to distance yourself from. Some group of people that you say, they are, they are different from me, and therefore I don't want anything to do with them. Some of you really enjoy and, and uh, help precipitate uh, racial humor and sexist humor. And you just have to see when you do that, you are going against the grain of the integrity of people because they are made royal. They are made in the royal image of God. Point one, people are made royal. But secondly, we are also made reflective. Let's look at um, verse 27, if I can... Find it. Here it is. Uh, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When it says that we are created in the image of God, it's saying something about our very essence, that we are imaging beings. We reflect back to God, uh, him. If he is centered, if he is the center of our life, we, we reflect that back. We ref- that's just sort of how we are wired. We are imaging beings, and therefore I, our identity is is faced outwardly. We, we face outward. We, we, we need people out there to inform what is true in here. And what I mean by that is that you always know other people better than you do yourself, right? You, you are created with this relational bent that just kind of, you just face outwardly, not inwardly. You're, you're, you're too blind and too embedded within yourself. This is the whole principle behind uh, why the first four or five weeks of American Idol is so amazing. It's because people people come into American Idol honestly believing this is true about me, that I'm a good professional singer and I can win this thing. And they get around other people who can inform them with a lot of you know hostility that no you are not good no you should be ashamed of yourself for even trying out you know like it takes somebody else on the outside to inform what is true about them they just didn't they didn't know it they didn't believe it this is the stupidest thing i don't even know how to explain this the, when when Catherine and i first got married the first month or so i i started to develop uh, this weird quirk where I would ask questions with a British inflection. <laughs> I don't know why, but I would ask something. I would be like, I don't even know. I can't even replicate it. But it was something like, uh, "So how are you feeling today?" Or I, I would put some weird inflection on the end, and she was like, "Why are you asking? Stop speaking in this British accent. Where did this come from? Who did I marry?" And I'm and I'm thinking. What are you talking about? I'm, I'm talking to you the way that I've always talked. And we kind of went back and forth. She's trying to inform me, where did this inflection come from? And I'm constantly asking and constantly talking. And it took about several weeks of this dialogue before I caught myself, before I actually heard it myself. Wow, I don't know why I, I just said it like that. I don't know why I have been. But it took somebody on the outside to inform 
What is true about me? I mean, this is the same reason why when you listen to sermons, you think, oh, so and so, I wish so-and-so were here to hear this. You are so much more in touch with other people's needs than you are your own. Even, even though you need to hear it just as badly, you, you think, oh, so-and-so needs to hear this. So, okay, if this is true, if this is true that we are reflective, that we face outwardly, uh, three quick questions. What do you need? How do you get it? And, and what does it take? First question, uh, if this is true that we face outwardly, then what do you need? You need community. You need other people in your life, around your life, to be able to inform you about you. Because we're always asking the question, right? This is the question you are asking as a college student is, who am I, right? (laughs) What do I really believe? What am I going to do with my life? These are all questions about identity. Do you want to really answer those questions? Do you want to get to know who you are? Then plunge into community. Plunge in and let people know you. Some of you may think to yourself, I'm a very... Uh, caring and sensitive and sweet Christian person. And it takes somebody who actually knows you, who has spent time around you, to be able to look at you and say, why do you always uh, go by your schedule and not mine? Why do you never, let, why, why do you never ask me questions? Why, why are we always doing what you want to do on the weekend and not what I want to do? And you start to realize, oh, in the context of community, I'm a lot more selfish and a bigger jerk than I thought I was. Or if you thought for your whole life, I want to be a teacher. This is what my uh, family wants me to do. This is kind of what I've always wanted to do. And it takes somebody who's been around you long enough to say, it seems like the thing that really activates you, the thing that really energizes you is your music. It, it's, it's what you seem to run to. It's what you seem to be looking at on the uh, internet and reading up on. And you have all the gifts there and it seems to really excite you. Why do you want to be a teacher? Why have you not looked at this? And it takes people actually knowing you to be able to inform you what is true about you. So, okay, second question, how do you get it? How do you benefit from the joy of a community like this? Well, there's several different ways, but one of the things that I want to highlight is for you to get plugged into one campus ministry. Some of you are going to like three and four different campus ministries throughout the week, and you pop in and you pop out, and how in the world do you expect ever to be known? You just kind of show up and then, and then leave, and there's no way that you can kind of plunge in and get to know somebody. And I know the first couple of weeks, everybody's shopping around, looking at that, looking at that. But here in the next couple of weeks or so, all the different campus ministers are going to be encouraging you, pick one. Jump in. It's going to be hard to get. It's going to be hard to be known in a context where you pop in and you pop out and you aren't investing. You aren't plunging in. You aren't being known and letting other people in on your life. Or the other way is, it, it, some of you are so extremely busy. You go from this meeting to that meeting to this group to that group, and you have no free pockets of time. You have filled up your entire day where you're just bouncing around and running around. How can you be known in a context like that? You must stop and slow down and plunge into community and start being vulnerable, start letting other people in, start giving people access to your heart. Do you know what it takes? This is the third question. Do you know what, do you know what it takes to do this? Because none of you really want to do this. This is a very unnatural thing to want to jump in and plunge in and be this vulnerable where people can actually know me and speak into my life. It takes deeply believing the gospel. It takes uh, deeply believing the fact that you are so secure and approved and accepted because of what Jesus has done that you now have the resources to be able to begin moving out and begin start being honest and letting other people in and kind of letting people into these walls that everybody has kind of put up. 
The reason why we all hide and the reason why we all bend the truth and want to cover up all of the bad things about us is because we are so insecure about the fact that God loves us because of the gospel. We, we, we are shaky in our relationships with people because we are shaky in our understanding of the gospel. But if we deeply believe that the king of the universe was for us and approved us because of the work of Jesus, then when we move into a relationship and somebody knows us and they freak out and they run away and yes, it'll hurt and you're like, ah, but it'll be okay. Because the king of the universe says, I love you and I approve of you. And that's all that should matter. And I know some of you are saying, this, you're saying, Matt, I come to RUF. I plug into this thing. I come week in and week out and nobody talks to me. Nobody asks me questions. I feel like I'm believing the gospel. I'm here. I'm trying to be vulnerable. What do you want me to do? Well, the gospel also speaks to you because it says, if you were so secure in, in what Jesus has done, then you would not feel like, okay, well, I need to stand back and wait for somebody to initiate with me. I can now start to initiate in others. I don't have to wait for people to ask me questions. I can be the one to ask them questions. I can invest in them. I can start to speak into their life. Just as I want them to speak into my life, I can make the first move. So this is what it takes, is to deeply believe the gospel, to jump into community. So we are royal because we're made in the image of God. We are Reflective, because we are imaging beings. We are made in the image of God. But the second, third thing, rather, is that we are uh, representational. And I must admit, I'm cheating a little bit with this one, because the first two points refer to everybody without exception. Everybody is made with radical dignity and, and has an identity that kind of faces outward. But this last one refers to the first image, to Adam Himself, And I want you to uh, see why this is so crucial. Adam was selected by God to function as a representative for all of humanity. Meaning, what he does, what he did, affects everybody else. He was sort of the one that God elected to represent all of humanity. It's the same way uh, that... The same principle behind how we elect a president, right? We elect a president and say... Represent us. And so he makes decisions, and his decisions affect you. He can make things, you know, make moves in the White House, and you didn't want him to do it, but you elected him to represent you, and so that trickles down and affects you. It's the same way when you represent, uh, or when you hire a lawyer to represent you, right? He's representing you in the, in the uh, courtroom, and if this lawyer does well, then you win. If this lawyer does poorly, you lose. I mean, you, he's representing you. It's the same principle here with, uh, with Adam. Whatever he does, his descendants, all of humanity, gets credit for. And so what did he do? Well, we'll find out here in a couple of weeks in Genesis 3, but to jump ahead, we'll just say that he blew it. He sinned. He rebelled. He said, I don't want to image God. I don't want to serve God. I want to be God. And this move, this move matters because it affects you and it affects me. If you, if you picture a, uh, a piece of glass or a mirror, right, and you kind of smack it with a hammer right in the middle, there's that direct impact point, but then it kind of cracks and you know, fragments all the, all the way out, kind of looks like a spider web, right? That impact point was Adam's fall into sin, the fall, and it cracked and fragmented every area of his life from the way that he felt to the way that he thought to his sexuality to the way that he related to God. Every area of his life was fragmented and distorted and fractured because of sin. And because he is our representative, our lives are as well. This is why our lives are fractured and fragmented. What Adam did 
affects you. You and I do not only receive the blame for his failure, we also inherit that sinful disposition, that disease that we call sin. And so when the image of God was intended to reflect the glory of God, now it is fractured and broken and distorted. Sure, it's still an image. Sure, it's still an image of God structurally. You know, the mirror is still a mirror, but it's now defaced and it's marred and it's ruined. And so what do we do as broken and fragmented images of God? We treat people that were created as royal as trash. We enter into relationships and we don't serve people, we consume them. We enter into community not to serve others, not to invest, but to consume. We don't serve our boyfriends or our girlfriends. We physically and sexually and emotionally consume them to satisfy our own desires. This is what this whole sinful thing has done. It has turned us uh, into consumers of each other and not to servers of each other and lovers of each other in that sense. And therefore, every area of your life and of my life is touched by this distorting, fragmenting, fracturing power of sin. And it can all be traced back to our first representative, to the first image. But the gospel is, is that God sent another image. God sent another image of God who was untouched by sin and by the fragmenting power of it. Look, look down in the, that second verse on your handout, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, it says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. God sent another representative, a second Adam, as the Bible also refers to him. God sent his son, in the person of Jesus Christ, to, as a true man, as one who is made in the image of God, as a representative of a new humanity, so that those who are united to him, uh, he represents you. He, you get all the credit of what he has done, right? Because if Adam is your representative, then you inherit the blame of what he has done and you inherit that sinful disposition. But if Jesus is your representative then you inherit the credit of what he has done, a perfect life, and you inherit this disposition towards holiness, towards godliness. So, okay, how do you get Jesus to be your representative? Well, the Bible says that uh, the instrument that God has ordained for what Jesus has accomplished to unite to you is, is the instrument of faith. And that means to put your trust in him. That means to center everything in your life on him. That means to let him set the agenda. That means to let him write the script of your life's story. And so what happens when you unite yourself to Jesus? What happens? What do we see him doing? We see him slowly piecing back together those broken and fragmented pieces. He is restructuring you, recreating you, refashioning you into something. But what is it? Look down at this last verse, Romans 8.29. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Don't get hung up on the word predestined. We'll go out to coffee and talk about it all you want. I want to focus your attention on what it is you are being conformed into, shaped into, re-pieced into. It says you are being conformed to the likeness of His Son. So whereas a life before, before you knew Jesus, your life was dominated by sin and selfishness and pettiness, and when Jesus starts being at work in your heart, you start looking more like Him. 
love and joy and service and obedience and humility. Does this mean that, okay, if I believe in Jesus, all the fractures and fragments of sin are gone? No. We are still deeply permeated with sin. Does this mean, okay, that I don't need uh, community anymore? No, this is the reason why we need community, because we are still fractured and fragmented, and Jesus is still at work. The longer you live as a Christian, the longer you start uh, implementing the gospel in your own heart and in your own life, you start to see something change. You start to see, oh man, I'm way more cracked and fragmented and fractured than I ever thought I was. But because of Jesus, you know that God loves me and accepts me and approves me a lot more than I ever could imagine that he would have. And what does this do to you? Once you start getting that into your head, once you start getting that into your heart, this gives you all of the resources to do what we had talked about earlier, to move towards people, to move towards people in love that you otherwise wanted nothing to do with. It gives you all the resources to start pouring out your life and your time and your schedule for others. It gives you the resources to start being vulnerable and honest because you're so okay in the gospel, you can start peeling back and letting other people in. It gives you all the resources to start jumping into community and getting to know and getting to love and getting to serve other people. But you need a new representative if Jesus is not representing you. Is your life marked by the life of Adam? Namely, autonomy and self-sufficiency. And I don't need God. I don't, I don't need you. And do you see that impact in your life in every area by cracks and fractures and fragmentation? Or is your life marked by the representative of Jesus where you're starting to see him at work in you, filling you with joy, filling you with humility, filling you with uh, the resources to begin being vulnerable with others? That's the most important question. It's not who are you, but it's whose are you? Is Adam representing you or is Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your son whom you sent as the perfect image of God to renew and to fix the broken images of God. I pray both for my heart and for these folks' hearts here that we would cling to the Lord Jesus even tighter right now, tonight, and throughout this week. We pray that you would uh, give us a heart that swells with need, that we would be able to say, I need the Lord Jesus in a new and a real and a fresh way. And I pray that you would give us the faith to reach out and to grab him and to put our trust in him. We pray this in his matchless name. Amen.